Um, so <clears throat> today you're going to have to uh, not only push through uh, the haze created by your own uh, cold and flu medication that you're on um, and, the, and the grief and disappointment um, that you have over having finished your donut, um, which I also have every morning, the, um, the, every Sunday morning, the, um, but also putting up with uh, my voice and, and me being hazy on medication. I had somebody come up and hand me in between uh, something to ask me to, to comment on. Um, the Eagles Bluff has a brand new, uh, a relatively new chapel set up down there, and they asked some different people to come and, and speak periodically there, and they wanted me to let you guys know I'm speaking tomorrow night at Eagle Bluff's chapel at 6 on reading the Bible for all it's worth, a basic about two-hour primer on hermeneutics. And so um, if you would like to be a part of that or come see that, uh, whatever, it's tomorrow night. It's not much warning. I'm sorry about that. But, um, but they asked if we would say something here. Everyone's invited. Um, so anyway, tomorrow night at 6 down at Eagles Bluff. So if you want to be a part of that, it'd be great. Um, <clears throat> so as we look at this passage, um, this is an intense passage. Um, we've been going through, keep in mind, you know, it only takes like 10, 12 minutes to read through Second Peter. We've been on it now for several months. Um, and, uh, and still it feels rushed to wrap it up. It always does. I'm just used to that. No matter what I'm teaching, it always feels like I'm rushing to the end. And um, but there's some intense stuff here at the end of Second Peter. It's all connected to what was at the first of Second Peter, um, which we'll talk about next week more. But, uh, but as we p- pick up in chapter 3, verse 10, I want you to catch the significance of this and that this is a big deal, this, this teaching is. <coughs> so I hope that you'll um, hope you're ready for it. Here we go. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in in which righteousness dwells. So we need to unpack this step by step. And remember the pattern as we look at it, hopefully you've been looking at it, um, of observation to look at what's there and then to interpret it, to go back and look at what other Bible passages say about it. What are the contexts of the day and how do we apply those things um, to our lives in in the year 2022 And remembering that Peter has stepped over into eschatology, meaning that strange study of things to come. What is going to happen someday? And so Peter is going to use not only his own uh, thoughts here inspired by the Spirit, but a whole lot of Jesus' teaching is wrapped up here, as well as many of the prophets. So for example, we start with this phrase, the day of the Lord. What is that? Well, in Amos 5, we see the phrase, the day of the Lord used to describe God breaking out like a fire against those who insist on standing against Him. He is done with the oppression and the hypocrisy when He steps in. It says in Amos that when He steps in, quote, justice rolls down like water. And this is one of the concepts that's important for us to wrap our brain around when it comes to having a just God and a right God. Many of us are uncomfortable, maybe rightly so, made uncomfortable with the thought of God judging mankind. But understand, to overlook and pretend like injustice isn't happening is not acceptable. That's not an okay option. And we're watching (coughs) the the Prime Minister in Great Britain right now facing the consequences of spending years and years overlooking the sins, (coughs) sorry, and abuse of 
of people in his cabinet that he's overlooked it and he's like, oh, it'll be, you know, he's laughed about it, mocked it, winked at it, accepted it, and now it's costing him. We don't like that. We don't like that in our politicians. We don't want them to look at sin and go, meh, well, what's the big deal, right? We want them to take that stuff seriously, and a just God will take that seriously, will take sin seriously. So we, we want that to be the case. We need that to be the case, and it is the case. <coughs> he is going to take our sin seriously. When he uses this phrase, this idea of, of his justice rolling out like fire. So fire is a great example of a picture of this. And I told in the first service the example. So I grew up out in the woods um, and with a forestry professor for a dad. And so we were always working on our land and we typically burned all of it every year. Uh, systematically going through with controlled burns and guy who had a PhD and that kind of stuff. And so that was very normal for us. It wasn't normal for my new bride, who's a little bit of a city, kind of grew up in the city. And, and so she's out with visiting our family. I don't remember if we're newly married or maybe not even married yet. And, uh, and so we did a, you know, it's like, hey, we're going to have dinner at five and we're going to hang out during the day. And what we were going to hang out and do was burn a section of our property. And so, which is not normal, I know for most people, but, um, and so we did that. Had this controlled burn. It was all very, uh, very good. No problems. Uh, it went flawlessly. And it was time to go in for dinner, and we go in for dinner. Well, while we were in there for dinner, uh, some stump, something weird happened, and, and a stump that had supposed to be put out or whatever flamed back, as they do periodically. That happens, and it's okay. We, we had that under control. But then also, like a 20-mile-an-hour wind kicked up during dinner that had not been predicted, and no one knew was coming. And so my memory of it is Ginger going back out on the back porch sometime after dinner, and then casually walking back in trying to be real calm about this because she doesn't want to seem like I'm the new person in the family who's freaking out, but said, I, I, I think the woods are on fire. And so, <clears throat> so we went outside and sure enough, the flames had spread and had taken over a much larger area. And she was right. My family's attitude about things like that is, uh, I mean, okay, let's go deal with it. And so everybody knows what they're supposed to do. You literally got people getting up, getting, everybody's just kind of, you know, buckets and and rakes and hose and shovels and we'll go and went out there and, and it took a while because it was out of control at that point but we got it back in control got it got it where it needed to be put it all out and everything was good and it just in our in my family it's like hey a good story right and, and adventure when nearly burned down the forest that's really fun um <laughs> but we didn't which means it, it was perfect like that's how that's how you know if it was successful is the consequences and um, so anyway that's a great picture of this God's day, the day of the Lord, and there are several of those throughout Scripture. We see it happen. In fact, it happens all the time at the individual level and at the cultural level um, where God breaks out against the injustice of a culture, the injustice of a society, the injustice of mankind, sometimes against the injustice of specific people. And it all seems fine. Like everything's going along fine. There's no consequences for all this immoral behavior. There's no consequences for this injustice. There's no consequences for this. And then suddenly there are consequences. Very suddenly sometimes, like a fire breaking out. <coughs> this phrase appears in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Luke uses the phrase. Paul uses the phrase. Peter uses the phrase. And John uses the phrase. This is a significant biblical theme, the day of the Lord. This is not just some thought process, that, you know, thought experiment that some PhD student in a seminary had. This is biblically sound. There will come a day. So there are, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but the, prof the prophecies, when we go through prophecies here, 
and discuss them, I, always, I espouse to what is sometimes called the birth pangs um, uh, philosophy when it comes to uh, prophecy, which is things that have been prophesied are going to happen, and then they're going to happen again, and then they're going to happen again, and then they're going to happen again, and then there will be a last time they happen. I'll talk more about that in a second. But an example of that, so um, I was listening to a, a secular book about the city of Jerusalem, kind of the biography of the city of Jerusalem. And the secular author mocks <coughs> the idea that in Matthew 24, um, Jesus warns his followers, hey, when you see uh, soldiers gather around the city, when you see armies show up around the city, man, when they start showing up, it's time to head for the hills. Get out of the city and head for the hills. And the author mocks that, saying, obviously, Jesus' disciples later claim that Jesus said that to make him look really smart and prophetic. Because sure enough, when the Romans army showed up in AD in the AD, late AD 60s, it was time to get out of the city, and anyone left in the city was going to be in huge trouble, and that's true. I kid you not, when just in the very next chapter, that same author references the fact that when the Romans did take the city, there weren't any Christians there. Because the Christians, I guess just by blind luck, had all fled the city the minute the Roman army started showing up. Almost as if someone had warned them in advance, when the Roman army starts showing up, you need to flee and get out of the city. Which is, of course, exactly what happened. Jesus told them, when you see this coming, get out of the city. When they saw it coming, they got out of the city. And when the city fell, there were almost no Christians in it at all. In fact, Christians are able to come back in and reestablish the church in Jerusalem after that. Now, <clears throat> you go, wow, that's, that's, that seems like something that's about a prophecy in the future. When, when you see armies gathering, I do think it's about the future. I, I just also think it's about the past. In fact, that prophecy has been fulfilled several times throughout history, and I believe it easily could be fulfilled several more times in, history, in the future. Um, <coughs> and then eventually it'll happen one last time. And that's going to happen, and it'll be the fulfillment of these prophecies in the final sense. This idea of the day of the Lord refers to a moment when the wrath of God is poured out, sometimes on an unbelieving world and sometimes on Israel. It seems to reference any time God determines that it is time to bring a sudden and overwhelming justice to a situation. <clears throat> John and I were talking about how in the 80s, and I, could, I couldn't remember who it was, but there was a comedian, a Christian comedian, who referred to this moment as being like, you know, when everyone's acting up and misbehaving in the pool, in the swimming pool, and people are throwing stuff, and they're not listening, and they're splashing, and, and all that kind of stuff. And finally, you know, mom or dad or the lifeguard or somebody comes out and goes like, all right, you know what, that's it. Everybody out of the pool. Like, we're just shutting down the pool. That's this moment when God's like, you know what, enough. I've warned you enough. I've told you enough. You're not listening. Everybody out of the pool. We're going to start this whole thing over. There have been several of these days in the past, and I believe more will come, and there eventually will be the final great day of God the Almighty. For example, in the pouring of the sixth bowl of judgment and revelation, we see very familiar language if you've been reading 2 Peter. Revelation 16 says this, <clears throat> For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now a lot of times people uh, use this word Armageddon to mean all kinds of things, like an asteroid falling out of the sky or Bruce Willis making a movie. Either one could <laughs> fall under the heading. So this is a, 
This, these are ideas that are all over the place, like the, this idea of the day of the Lord or the end of time um, or, or the judgment day, or you pick it and all these different things, but very often there's not uh, a lot of understanding going on there. For God's enemies, this day, this day of the Lord is a truly horrific day. What's going to happen in that battle that, that's described there in Revelation is that the enemies of God are going to finally decide to go enough of their terrorist activities. They're just going to go toe to toe against God. And spoiler alert, it's not going to go well for them. That's the, <clears throat> that's the situation. God draws them together, and they've decided they finally know that they can take him, and they go face to face. It's a time for the agents of wrath to answer for their crimes against God and their fellow human beings. In the final day of the Lord, <coughs> the great day, the ultimate power of man, under the influence of the power of the devil, all the rebels together will declare war on the power of God. And it won't go well for them. It will not go well for the agents of evil and injustice that thought they'd been getting away with all of this abuse and all of this sin and all of this crime and all these rebellions. They thought they're getting away with it all the time and they're going to discover all of a sudden that they weren't. But what else can we know about this day of the Lord other than it's a terrifying day for his enemies? Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be exposed. So how about this phrase, like a thief? So these massive cataclysmic events, stars falling out of the sky, and the moon turning to blood, and the sun being blotted out, and all these massive um, catastrophic ideas painted through this language um, of the end times of God remaking the whole heavens and the whole earth. But let's talk about this phrase, the thief in the night. It's an idiom. And our first instinct is to think that coming like a thief in the night means without warning. It's not exactly true. We're going to come to that. It's more than that. Sudden, um, uh, unexpected, without warning, when you least expect it. But it also specifically refers to the idea that a properly prepared person might have avoided the worst of the consequences. That if you'd been prepared for the thief to come in the night, maybe you would not have been robbed blind. The danger is not just of the thief coming, because that's going to happen. The danger is being caught fully unaware, and literally exposed, naked, unclothed. In today's world, the perfect idiom is, caught with your pants down. That literally you're going to get caught, and you're not going to be prepared. So think in terms of, for example, were you prepared to quarantine? Were you prepared when suddenly the, the government comes out and says like, hey, for the next two or three weeks, why don't you stay in your houses? No going out. How many of us were prepared for two or three days of doing that? In my mind, the real question of wisdom is, how many of us are prepared to do that now? Because if your idea was, well, that could never happen. Well, okay, so it has happened, which means it can happen, right? Isn't that, isn't that kind of what that usually means? How many people were prepared with a fireplace and firewood when snowpocalypse hit, right? How many of us were prepared for that? If you weren't prepared for that, you go like, this Texas. We're never going to have four or five days of no electricity and no water. That's never going to happen. Okay, so see, here's the thing is, it happened. And so the question would be, are you, well, what's going to happen if it happens again? Are you going to go like, yeah, I learned nothing from the first time that happened. I was, I was absolutely the same level prepared the first time as the second time. So <clears throat> that's the picture that's created by the thief in the night. This is, you go, oh, this is without warning. I mean, except, of course, 
you're being warned about it right here. Literally in this passage, this day is coming. Did you have supplies ready in quarantine? Did you have fireplace and firewood during snowpocalypse? Did you have East Texas alarm services in place when someone tried to break in? So this is... This is, this is the imagery that's created by this. It comes suddenly and there's no chance to prepare. Then. You could prepare now, but there's no chance to prepare then. So it's kind of false to say it's without warning. It is with warning, but it is still sudden. If you're not prepared, it's going to happen. One evening, <coughs> the last week of his life on earth, Jesus and his followers stopped to talk on the Mount of Olives about the temple. Which is natural. If you've been there, you turn and look and you just see today, you see the Dome of the Rock or something like that and you go, man, that really is striking. And the Dome of the Rock, the, the Muslim structures that are there are nothing compared to what the temple would have been in Jesus' time, not even close. And when Jesus tells his followers that no stone of the temple will be left upon another, they ask him privately afterwards, quote, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You can find the entirety of this in Matthew 24. And 25. This section of 2 Peter is so clearly taken from Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 24 that if we'd had time, <coughs> it probably would have been good to teach Matthew 24 for two or three weeks before getting to 2 Peter 3. It's often called the Olivet Discourse. Um, we reference it, we'll reference it several times before we close the scroll on 2 Peter next week. In the middle of the conversation that Jesus has in this follow-up, answering their question, he tells a little parable. In this parable, ten unmarried women are invited to be part of a wedding feast with a bride. So a woman finds out she's going to get married. She invites them to the feast. She get, they get to be part of the wedding. <clears throat> and then they get the word that the groom is coming. So just like we read about in other passages, the groom says, we're going to get married. They all establish it. They get it in place. They know that that's going to happen. He goes to prepare a place at his father's house for his new bride and for his family. Then when that's done, he sends word through his best man, hey, I'm done. The, the, the room is done. I'm, I'm prepared to come get you. We're ready for the feast. So he sends message to her, and then she gets ready. And then sometime before long, he's going to show up. Is, is it a day? Is it two hours? Is it two days? No one knows. No one knows exactly how long it's going to be. That's the parable that Jesus tells. Ten of these unmarried women who have been invited to the wedding... They take their oil lamps, all ten take their oil lamps to be prepared for the journey. Five of them take extra oil, and five of them don't. They don't think it's going to take that long. The groom probably be here in a few hours. Don't need all that extra oil. They all fall asleep. The groom takes longer than they think, and they all fall asleep. And suddenly they're awakened with the cry, He is coming. They all increase the light on their lamps. They, they, they shorten the wicks. But five realize they're running short of oil. <laughs> They then have to go to the shop to buy more, and while they're gone, the groom comes, and they're left behind. They weren't prepared to wait. All of that is wrapped up in these verses, and we'll start in verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. <clears throat> Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The idea here is that people who know him would know. People who he knows would know to wait, 
to be prepared for it. All that whole parable is wrapped up in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. A lot of people try to put a lot of teaching into this parable, but there's really only one application, and that's this. You need to be prepared to wait. You need to be prepared to wait. It's going to take a while, Jesus is saying. Jesus paints a picture straight from Hebrew Scriptures with signs from the political, uh, the politics of men to the signs in the skies to abominations on earth, even including things like earthquakes and famines. Then he compares the day to Noah's flood. So again, he's going to make another analogy, this time to the historical event of Noah's flood. Let's look at his words, Matthew 24, 36. <coughs> but concerning that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. You see the application here. What are the signs that the flood is coming? None. There are no signs that the flood is coming. But the flood is coming. They've been warned the flood is coming, presumably. They didn't listen because everything still seems normal. We still got wedding plans. We still got funerals. We still got eating and drinking. We still got people going to work. It's not going to happen. That's what like a thief means. Until the day when Noah entered the flood. And then they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Everything will seem just the same. It will seem just normal. There's not going to be a whole lot of warning. It's just going to happen quite suddenly. In fact, he continues to go. Two men will be in the field, one taken and one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Just doing the everyday things that everyday people did every day. And then all of a sudden, it's a very different day. All of a sudden, it's the day of the Lord. It's not on the calendar for any of the rest of us. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I was going to create a third analogy. This analogy is... The master of a house had known, sorry, this is still the thief one. The master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. I love that that's the definition. It's like the game, you know, that you're winning until you remember that you're playing the game. Some of you know about this, right? Everybody's score is reset to zero, by the way. So here's the, but for everybody else, if you don't understand, like, it's, it's the, if you, listen, if you expect it, you can probably count on it not being at that time. Uh, people have joked about, like, every time somebody predicts it, we're like, well, cross that day off. <laughs> every time somebody publishes a book, it's going to be this day, this year, at this time, like, well, probably not that then. Until we finally all get so inured to that that we're like, then that would be a totally surprising time when someone predicted it. Regardless, it's not going to be when you expect it. How about this? Verse 45, here's where we get the other analogy. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Okay, so another analogy. The master has left. He's gone to the city. He's going to be back for dinner. He doesn't send a lot of warning. You just know he's supposed to be back for dinner. He may not be back for dinner. Sometimes he's late. (laughs) But what you don't want to happen is for him to show up time for dinner and you didn't make any dinner. You need to be faithful with what you're responsible to do, responsible to be, because you never know he's going to show up or he's not. Blessed is the one whom, blessed is that servant whom the master will find so when he comes. So there's the warning. In fact, Jesus is going to use another analogy that does the exact same thing. 
And this is one that many in the room can very closely connect to. This is actually where I get the philosophy for, for prophecy that I espouse. Matthew 24, 8. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So I remember distinctly sitting in that room when Ginger was about to give birth to Mark. And, and because we didn't know what we were doing, <coughs> that's of course the most traumatic one of all the giving birth is the first one because no one knows what's going on. And so we're sitting there, I'm sitting there watching her and she's trying to sleep and she'll be asleep and I'm, I'm watching this little number go up. I, to this day, I don't know what that number was measuring. What I knew that it measured is that at a certain point she was going to wake up. A certain, the number was going to hit a certain number and then her eyes were going to get really big and she was going to be awake and if the number kept climbing, she was going to get more and more vocal. And so the, number, the, the more the number went up, the more vocal we, experience we were going to have. And so I'm, I'm sitting there watching it climb, watching it climb, going, oh gosh, what is it, right? And then, and then, and then it would hit a certain number and then it would start dropping back off and dropping back off and then she would fall back into the coma that she had been in a few seconds before, right? Those were the birth pains. And then one of them hit and it kept going and it didn't stop climbing. And somewhere in that moment, a whole bunch of other people entered the room because they suddenly got very interested in what was going on in the room with us. And they knew when that moment was and they were supposed to, and they showed up and then one of those birth pangs happened and it kept going and then we had a son. That's how that works. You never know which birth pang is the one that's going to now give you the child. Is this just the birth pang? Is this invasion of Jerusalem just a birth pang or is it the last one? Is this it? Is it time for everybody to get out of the pool? Is it judgment day? Is it the day of the Lord or is it just a day of the Lord? A day of the Lord, 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 the final day of the Lord. That's how this will work. That's how prophecy works. When it is time, it's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. You better have packed an overnight bag before her water breaks. Right? When she says it's time to go to the hospital, that's not the time to go get in the car and realize you've been running on empty for two days. <laughs> it's time to make sure the oil lamp is full. And that you've got extra oil. That's exactly the picture. Now, I'm going to mention a little bit here, and then we'll go into next time, next week, <coughs> more in detail, what that looks like. What does that life look like in the meantime? What does waiting look like? Are we prepared? We're supposed to be prepared. Well, prepared how? Prepared for what? Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Well, there's a first place to start, is to make sure that we are prepared with works that we don't mind being exposed. They were prepared with the type of life that we don't mind being revealed, that people will see that life. <laughs> Verse 11 makes it even more clear. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? We're not going to get to that today, not till next week, but I'm sorry. Hastening the day of the Lord? Because actually, it's the coming of the day of. Uh, I did this over and over again in the first service, and I just did it again. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. He changes the word there, and it throws me off every single time. It doesn't change the meaning, I don't think, but the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies melt as they burn. 
What kind of life should we live? We should live the kind of life <clears throat> that, that gives the right reverence to the fact that there's going to come a day that God thinks is so important that he's going to dissolve the heavens for it. It's that important of a day. We're not talking fireworks. We're talking the melting of the universe. It's that important a day. Are you living as though that day is coming? Now, what are the physics required for that? I have no idea. I don't have to know. We're going to run into that all the time. What side of lives should we then live? Before I get to the application of that, which at least by first service standards means I won't get there today, I don't want to skim over this new heaven and new earth idea. So many in, Christian, in modern Christianity don't understand this. This imagery is used powerfully throughout Scripture over and over again. Isaiah references the new heaven and the new earth. Um, the vision that God gives to John in Revelation makes it super clear that this, what this idea means, a new heaven and a new earth. Listen to what Revelation 21.1 starts with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is a restructuring of creation. Creation is going to be unmade. <clears throat> so many Christians, especially evangelicals, have this idea of this place somewhere up, I don't know why we assume that, somewhere up that there's a bunch of clouds and we're going to sit on those clouds and play harps or something like that. That's the imagery that you have. And there's some who believe there's a place like that now, a place that might be called paradise where people wait until judgment, and that's certainly plausible. But the idea that that's where we're going to spend eternity is not accurate biblically. The truth is there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth pass away. Peter tells us that the heavens will pass away with a rushing noise. Maybe like the rolling up of a cloud, like a scroll. In Isaiah 34.4 the prophet creates that image. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Revelation 20.11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. <clears throat> There's a lot more passages I could reference here, but understand clearly, the current earth and the current heavens are going to be unmade. In the Hebrew mind, the heavens have several stages. There's one is the, the concept of the invisible heaven where the invisible universe exists that's kind of interdependent with ours. But the first heaven is the, is the sky, and the second heaven is where the stars are. And the idea that those physical versions and everything they represent is going to be ushered away. Somehow this is going to be a starting over. <clears throat> the earth dissolved and everything revealed by fire. In other words, there will come a great day when creation is unmade on the great day of God. Judgment is then described. Great scrolls of judgment and one more scroll, the scroll of life. Everyone is judged for their life and then those whose names are in the scroll of life hang around for what comes next. Those who aren't are thrown into the same place of judgment for Satan and all the rebels against God. How will he know how to do this? How to judge, who to judge, and exactly by what standards? I grew up with this as a huge question on my heart, this idea of God judging people. <clears throat> it was a real problem for me. And I spent a lot of hours thinking about it, and I think I came up with some pretty good ideas. 
But here's what I think was going on. I think what was going on in my heart was I was imagining a day when Almighty God was going to be standing before all of creation and it was time to judge. And the first Native American or the first baby or the first mentally handicapped person or the first person with Alzheimer's or whatever was going to call before judgment and Almighty God was going to go, well, no one told me there were going to be Native Americans here. How am I supposed to judge them? They never met a Jew or a Christian. How they, they never got a copy of my Bible. There were millions upon millions of them who lived and died. And never, how come no one warned me they were going to be here for judgment? Someone's getting fired, right? No one told me they were going to be mentally handicapped adults or miscarried babies. How am I supposed to judge them? And what I realized was in the back of my brain, I think I was expecting that moment and that I was going to be out there in a crowd somewhere and I was going to be like, I mean, I've been thinking about it. I mean, if you want some thoughts, I've got some thoughts. We could discuss, I've really been given this some time. <clears throat> the truth is, as C.S. Lewis points out, God can either judge rightly or he can't. If he can't, there is no hope for anybody. If he can, we can leave him to do it. See, here's what's wild. I know it's going to come as a shock to you, but it's not necessary that I know everything. <clears throat> I don't have to. We talk about this in the Reconstructed Podcast all the time, Reconstructed Faith Podcast all the time. You hear some new thing and it's new to you. I promise you, it ain't new. It's not some new thing that someone has come up with to now undermine Christianity or undermine the faith. It's not new. It's been done. It may be new to you. You've never heard it before, and it's shocking to you to hear it. But there's probably been books and books and books written about it. Here's what I know for sure. It may be new to me. I don't know how to judge those situations. But he does. He's not going to get caught off guard by that. He's perfect in justice and perfect in righteousness. If he is God... He's perfect in all of those things, and he knows how to judge that moment. I don't. I don't have to. I'm not invited to the judgment part of it. Not as a judge, I'm not. How can a loving God condemn those who he loves to the lake of fire? I don't know. He does. The fact that I don't know isn't impressive to anybody. It shouldn't impress anybody that I don't know or that there are humans that don't know the answers to some of these questions. The list of things that I don't know are boundless. I couldn't even begin to list them. And if I did, I would probably leave off the majority of things I don't know because I don't know that I don't know those things. They wouldn't even go. The good news is he does. And it's his day of judgment. And it's his great day when creation unmade <clears throat> becomes creation remade. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, there are some for whom God's righteous <coughs> and, and just wrath is already spent. His righteousness and just wrath has already been spent. Those people are called Christians because we follow Christ. We put our faith in Christ and Christ is the one upon whom God's righteous wrath was spent. The, the wrath that we deserved. Remember, we don't want a God who, who winks and nods at sin, who just dismisses abuse and evil. In order for righteousness to be there, someone must pay, and so God himself paid. Jesus took that cup of God's wrath and drank it all the way to the bitter dregs at the bottom. 
This is the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. No one, no one has to face the day of the Lord in fear. No one. <clears throat> we just sang about that. In fact, the day of judgment doesn't even have to be that much faced in fear. I, I've, you've heard me say before, I've always imagined, I, as a youth minister, um, we had eight millimeter videos that we used to show. Some of y'all know what those are. Um, uh, they're a really clever way of showing videos and, uh, that <coughs> are way outdated. And, and we, would show, we would show these videos. When I was a youth, we would see these videos. I've talked before how I was raised in a church that taught that my salvation was in my hands. That I was the one holding on to it. And that if my hands got tired, or my hands got stained, or my hands got slippery, and I lost hold of my salvation, that it was gone. It was my responsibility to hold fast to my foundation through my merit, through my virtue, through my morality. And I was taught that it was a very fearful way to live. And I don't think a biblical way to live. <clears throat> and one of the ways that was portrayed was with a video showing uh, us being judged. And it was showing a kid, as always a, teen, a you know, teenager, because that's who it was targeted at. And they would be up on stage, and, and there was going to be this, this screen. Uh, and in fact, God had an 8mm uh, reel as well, that he was going because God's technology somehow matches ours. And it was going to be up on screen. And, and so the imagery was of this person horrified at all his friends um, watching his sins get portrayed on this screen. And I, th I think there's a right reverence about that. But at the same time, I remember at the time thinking like, I don't care about my friends. I just don't want my grandmother to see it. Like, I don't care about the, the whole race of mankind. What difference does that make? But Gigi, I don't want her seeing my sins. <laughs> By the way, someone came up between the services and said, or you her sins. I was like, hmm. <laughs> well, we, don't, we don't need to go there. Right? So... I don't want her to see my sins. I don't want that. That's how shameful, how embarrassing, right? She thinks I hung the moon. I mean, my kids, I'd be horrified. Ginger, I'd be horrified for them to see my sins. But they, they know, right? I mean, they know. They live with me. My Gigi still thinks, I mean, she died a few years ago, but to this day, I'm sure she thinks I'm sinless. And so this is a, like, I don't want her to see this stuff. I mean, so embarrassed. Like, Gigi, turn your head, turn your head. Like, <clears throat> and I was explaining it to a group of, of teenagers later when I was a student minister and explaining this video and explaining the power of this in my life, which of course is mostly negative power, but the power of this in my life saying, you know, all your sins are going to, and the way I told it was that I was going to be sitting on the stool on one side of a stage like this and the, the eight millimeter reel was going to start counting down, you know, three, two, one, y'all know, right? Some of the older people in the room and somewhere and during that countdown, Jesus in all of his glory was going to walk out onto the stage and sit on his stool because obviously it's my judgment and he's going to watch this with me. And even as I was telling the youth about it is when it struck me for the first time as I used that phrase, Jesus in all of his glory is going to come out on stage. And the truth is, of course, no one's going to care what's on the screen. Because Jesus in all of his glory is going to be standing on stage. Who's going to care what's on the screen? Do I really think that my judgment even is mostly about me? Of course not. If you all see all my sins portrayed on the screen, all you're going to be thinking is, wow, Jesus saved him from that. He is some savior. Look at that. Look at what Jesus saved him from. Jesus, you are awesome. You saved him from all of that. That's amazing. You are quite a savior. In fact, and anything, by the way, anything good that shows up on the screen, you're going to go, you did that with him? You managed to pull that off, limited hamstrung by that guy? And you still pulled it off? That's amazing. You're an amazing savior. 
In fact, we just sang about that. When we get there, what's going to be the truth? Is your gaze going to be transfixed fixed on each other's sins? Of course not. Your gaze will be transfixed on His face. And so even for us, <coughs> even in the judgment <coughs> of our behaviors, we don't have to fear. Romans 5, 18-19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. See, there's one pathway to justification in life for everyone. There's only one path for that that leads to that. Just as one trespass leads to condemnation. And we've all followed that path. Every single one of us has followed the path to condemnation. 4 verse 19, 4, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, some of us, God's righteousness, the work Christ has done, the condemnation was for all. In the same way the gift of life is available for all. However, many will still end up defined by their sin. The path is open to them and they won't take it. They will still be defined by their sin. But gracefully, many will be known through His act of righteousness. Which do we prefer? Do we prefer to be defined and identified and known by our sin or by His righteousness? Depends on whether you put your faith in His in him and his righteousness. <clears throat> instead the recipients, no longer children of wrath, but instead the recipients of his grace and love. I want to wrap up on this thought. This God, a just God, a right God, we want that. A God who then provides a way of escape from that just wrath and righteousness. That'd be awesome. A God who says he's going to go forever ahead of us and prepare a place for us that we can join him and that we can experience His goodness and His grace and His love. And He says in Ephesians 2 that it's going to take Him forever to show us His kindness. That's how long it's going to take. If Him pouring out kindness on us, it's going to take approximately forever for Him to run out of that. Doesn't that sound awesome? For those of you who don't believe, don't you wish it were true? I mean, for those who, who can't believe or who won't believe, and who this sounds like some kind of naive, weird religious claptrap that people are just making up, don't you go, man, that would be great if it were true. A silly Christianity stuff, it'd be great if it were true. I wonder if that's accurate. I wonder if you really, I wonder if you can long for it to be true. Can we, even if we don't believe it, could you say, man, I wish it were true. I say that about so many things that I would love. I wish that were true. <clears throat> So it seems to me like you need a compelling reason to not believe that it's true. If you really want it to be true. And if it's been revealed in a way that it has, and since it's plausible, because you're talking about a God who creates things from nothing, so certainly He could recreate things in the way He wants for us. That's the, the principle that's there, is that God has placed that out there. And Peter can't hold all of this in. And we're going to wrap up next week with Second Peter, Lord willing, based on, well, then what does it look like between now and then? How then should we live? Would we want that type of freedom and grace forever from a limitlessly creative God who loves us limitlessly? I would. It's hard for me sometimes to believe it, but I sure do hope it's true. <clears throat> In the moments of strength, when my psychology and my emotions allow me to believe it and accept the truth of it, and those are glorious moments. 
I accept that it's true and that there's a God who is beyond me and who understands this in ways that I don't. Again, my ignorance is boundless. But my faith, my eyes are transfixed on him. I want to read the last part of the the book as our closing uh, time. So if you'll stand with me, uh, thank you, that the assumption here, this time of invitation, is not just... It's not just a, a tradition. It's not just something that we do because, you know, we're, we're whatever denomination or whatever. It, it really is based on the assumption that God is at work in us. And it, it, that maybe the first step is, is being able to accept that it sure would be great if this was true for some of us. And for those who have accepted that it would be great for it to be true, then to understand why, why then am I not wanting to believe it is true? Why am I then not accepting it? What's in the way of that? How do I engage with that conversation? For those who do believe it's true, then obviously the the next question is the one that Peter asks. What should our lives look like then? If God thinks this day is important enough to recreate all of creation, am I living as though this day is that important a day? I don't know about you, but every time I think about that, I face conviction in my own heart of things that I, I could be doing or things that I should be doing or things that I would love to be doing but haven't prioritized, the things that are great in life, the best things in life. Um, it's, hard to, <clears throat> it's hard to set those aside. I have to set aside other things for the greater things a day like this day. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is telling you. If it is in a moment after we do, if it's that I need to be part of a community of believers I need, I need to come and, and, and join this dysfunctional family. You've already talked with, with Lance or whoever else you need to talk to in order to make that decision, and, you, and you're able to come down and, <coughs> and join with us. We'd love that. Um, if it's that you need to come and pray about something else in your own heart, something you need to repent of or change, or something you've been fighting God on, maybe it's just to ask God to give you the heart to desire Him. I don't know. This is between you and Him. So we'd love for, we've got people over there who would love to pray with you if you've got something there or up here either way. Um, whatever it is, I pray that the Lord is working in each of our hearts. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved... Since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. (coughs) Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all these letters, when he speaks in them of these things, there are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.